Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tame Notes is Flume to talk about how he wrote, recorded, and produced tracks across his various releases. Flume, Skin, Hi, This Is Flume, and his most recent album, Palaces. Ali Stratton, better known as Flume, is a Grammy-winning electronic music producer from Sydney, Australia. Growing up heavily involved in musical circles at school, Harley got his first taste for producing at the age of 11 when he came across some free music software in a cereal box. Honing his skills throughout his teens, often working alongside a local music producer, in 2011 he won a competition run by the label Future Classic, who subsequently signed him for the release of his debut EP, centred around the track Sleepless. The following year, he delivered his debut self-titled solo album, featuring guest appearances from artists including Chet Faker and Moon Holiday, among several others. The album topped the Australian charts, certified double platinum, and won four out of eight nominations at the 2013 ARIA Awards. A number of critically acclaimed remixes for artists including Lord, Disclosure and Hermitude followed, alongside non-stop touring and a joint EP with Chet Faker. In 2016, he released his second album, Skin, featuring the multi-platinum selling global hits Never Be Like You and Say It. It topped the Australian charts once again and went on to win Best Dance Electronic Album at the 2017 Grammy Awards. The 2019 mixtape Hi This Is Flume was also nominated for a Grammy. Having built a reputation as one of the key innovators within electronic dance music, Flume's latest album, Palaces, released in May 2022, draws inspiration from the stunning scenery of his home state, New South Wales. Today, I'm at home in Morden, South London, and I'm joined by Harley in his LA studio. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from Flume's latest album. This is Sirens, featuring Caroline Polacek. It is Flume with Sirens featuring Caroline Polacek from the new Flume album Palaces. And I'm very pleased to say that connected to me online is Harley Stretton, who is Flume. Hello, Harley. How are you? Hello. I'm very well. I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm very well, too. Looking forward to this. Um, I have a message for you from Dave, your old school friend from Gang of Youths, who recorded with us recently. Yeah, right. And we said, oh, we're really hoping to do Flume soon. And he said, oh, well, say hi. Um, he probably made a rude remark and stuff like that that I can't remember. But yeah, he says hi. So it was great to get Dave on. And obviously, you know, you were at school together. Yeah. And I think possibly did your first performances on stage together. Yeah, right? yeah, he was singing. I was playing saxophone. We were in the same music class, same year. So yeah, it's really cool to see him like crushing it. And yeah, we actually went back to the school and did like a little talk a few years ago. 
Uh, but yeah, it's it's fun. Excellent. So anyway, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much for coming on Take Notes. And we're taking a different angle because often we look at somebody's new album, which we will be looking at in a way, but we're also going to have a, a kind of lightning tour through your career. Yeah, I mean, shit, it's been a while now. Like, I think I've been doing this for like 10 years professionally. It all kicked off when I was 20, really. I was working at Hard Rock Cafe as a waiter, kind of hating it. Actually, yeah, really hating it. <laughs> uh, and I had, you know, I'd been doing music for a bunch of years, just messing around as a hobby. And um, I kind of linked up with Future Classic. I sent in some demos. They had this little competition going and they, yeah, liked what I was doing and signed me and the rest is history. Kind of snowballed from there. Yeah, it's amazing. I was reading one description of you as the Australian boy wonder around the release of the first album, which is the first one we're going to look at. So you're around 2021 20, at that time, and I guess 10 years later. Um, but you still look like a boy wonder. It must be so <laughs> It's I'll true. I'll take it. <laughs> Thank you. So we're going to play the first track from each of your releases. And so this is from the self-titled Flume album. This is Sintra, and we're going to have a, a blast of the master, and then we're going to find out how you created it. Cool. Sintra then, the opening song on the self-titled debut by Flume. And I mean, it's interesting looking at the debut album, Harley, because it seems linked into your journey, your discovery, your evolution within electronic music, because I can't help but think about how you first got started making electronic music, which seemed kind of random with a, a free CD-ROM with a cereal packet or something. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I basically started playing the saxophone when I was nine, I think, you know, in the school band and all that. And I, yeah, got this packet of cereal and it had like a CD in the box and it there's three different ones. There's like a hip-hop one, a dance one, and I think it was like a pop one. Anyways, I got the dance one. And I loaded it up on the computer and realized like you could do a whole song like this. And with the saxophone and stuff, it was always like I get to play one note at a time. Whereas with this, I was able to do the drums and have like chords in there and the bass. And that concept of kind of being able to write a symphony of music was completely new to me. I had no idea how music was made on a computer or anything until this point. And I was just fascinated by it and I wanted to learn more. So I went and downloaded a bunch of torrents, probably got a bunch of viruses on the family computer. <laughs> um, <laughs> went to like the video game store and with my dad and he asked him if he had any like music making games. And there was this one called EJ, 
which was like a more advanced version of what I got from a cereal box. And But the guy at the store was like, oh, I actually do music myself, like produce music. And this is cool. You should buy this thing. But if you come back next week, I'll burn you like a DVD or CD full of just cracked software, essentially. So we came back the next week and he had this CD and, you know, it had like FL Studio and Reason, all these things on it. And I just kind of installed a bunch of stuff and was confused for the next however long. (laughs) Um, Just went on YouTube, figured out how to use it. Yeah, just kind of went from there. Wow, that's great. So he kind of gave you a playground you could jump into and, and figure it all out and start exploring, which that's kind of fast track to you, I guess. Yeah, it was really cool. I kind of downloaded a bunch of different, I think uh, Cubase was one of them as well. And I tried to mess with them all. And I found FL Studio or Fruity Loops, the easiest or the one I could understand the most, played on that for a while. And that was kind of the thing I used to do music. And I would just kind of come home after school and mess around on it, just like playing video games or something. Yeah. So by the time it came to creating your debut album, what was your approach then? Mm. When I was like 14, I got contacted on MySpace by this guy who's doing music as Neon Stereo. Uh, Sean is his name. And he um, lives like half an hour from where I was in Sydney. And he was kind of interested in maybe like managing the project or, you know, just doing some music because he'd heard some stuff that he thought was good, I guess. He was a bit older and he had like an actual studio and I would kind of just go over there once a week or something and he taught me loads of stuff and he kind of mentored me and kind of got me a bit of money, you know, like I was able to do some stuff and sell some music on actual labels and get on Beatport. I I started doing music as Harley School Kid. You might be able to find someone, Beatport. (laughs) Um, Anyway, he then showed me the power of Ableton Live, which I hadn't used before. And I switched to that, which, yeah, was really good because it had a lot of features that FL Studio didn't have. And um, yeah, so around that time that happened and then I was just, you know, through my teens kind of doing music a bit. Finished school, worked a bunch of jobs. Like I used to work at a news agency, you know, like where they sell magazines and newspapers and lotto tickets for years. I was cleaning my dad's offices. I had my own backpack vacuum. Yeah, I was just kind of doing music on the side as a fun thing. There was the intention of like hopefully one day being able to do it professionally. And I went on this trip out of school to Europe and like the UK uh, with my friend. And that would have been when I was 19. We went for three months through the UK and Europe. And that's where I wrote most of the record. I had no intention of doing an album. I was kind of just, you know, staying in hostels and I'd go adventuring during the day and often kind of pull up in a cafe or something or a pub or something. And I'd just whip the laptop out, mess around with some ideas. And that's yeah, I wrote the bulk of the record on this Europe trip. I find like traveling is really good for me mentally to be creative. And yeah. Well, I had this old busted up MacBook that I kind of dragged through Europe. Yeah, made made lots of music and then I got home and life went continued as usual and then I this future classic thing came up and I sent in my music, sent in Sleepless, I think, this kind of EP I'd done 
which I'd already put out on SoundCloud yeah. and it was getting a bit of attention from blogs and stuff and with Future Classic kind of building a bit of a campaign around it and doing it properly, it gained more attention. And then they're like, cool, like, do you have more music? Like, let's, we should probably do a record. And I was like, all right, I'll have a look and kind of sent in all these bits and pieces that I'd made over the last year or so. And they're like, great, this sounds good. <laughs> um, let's <laughs> figure out a track list and uh, we'll put it out. So, yeah. That's so great. I love that idea that you went on what is almost a, a traditional Australian's backpacker holiday. Very traditional. You know, you go to Europe for a few months, but while you're there, probably having a, a few adventures and a, a few late nights, etc. But at the same time, you're playing away on your laptop, creating your debut album in, inadvertently, not realising. Just almost as if these ideas were just distractions from what else you were doing, in a way. You know, there, there was a kind of a, an unwinding aspect of doing that, you know, a way to relax yourself and yeah. get back in your own headspace. Well, I was, at that time, I was also doing, putting up a bunch of remixes and things on SoundCloud, and it was starting to get a bit of traction, and that was really exciting. I was really, like, couldn't believe that people were listening to, you know, I was getting a thousands of plays and that was insane to me and seeing the comments and that definitely was like a motivation uh, I actually went into I kind of parted ways with my friend for a few days because I wanted to stay in Italy and I so I booked this hostel and um, it was with these like three American one guy and two girls and I got chatting to the guy and then I told him I was into doing music and stuff and then he was like oh cool like I just found this song on some blog and played it to me and it was a remix that I had done of Onra and I was like wow. oh that's me like that's my project that's the thing I do that's and he was like what and <laughs> it was pretty funny that is great so with Sintra then was Sintra's the opening track on the album is it the first track that you worked on and how did you go about creating Sintra you know what would be your methodology at this point uh, I didn't have much methodology but I, I mean, we just tried to put it on the record and it didn't really fit anywhere else. So I'm like, yeah, we'll just put it first. And it went first. But the story behind it is that I went to Portugal. We had a wild night out on the town. I think we went to some like weird dubstep night in some random club, got pretty belted. And anyway, the next day we had a trip planned i think airbnb had just started and we were in an airbnb but the people who lived there were also there but they were really sweet and um they were like we'll take you out one day anyway the day after our dubstep night was the day they were going to take us out and they took us to a place called sintra in portugal which is this amazing i don't know if you know about it but it's just this it was a few hundred years ago they built this insane castle it's like romantic architecture or I'm not really sure, but it was this incredible kind of labyrinth. So uh, anyway, we got up and I was feeling terrible. I had a splitting migraine, but you know, we'd locked in this trip. So went ahead with it. I just around that time figured out like I get these crazy migraines sometimes, but caffeine actually fixes it for some reason. I think there's something wow. to do with the blood vessels. Yeah. So we pulled over cause I was thought I was going to throw up. I was dying in the car and I, pounded like three espresso shots back to back anyways my whole day changed I felt amazing all of a sudden and um you know when you get like really sick and then you feel 
better that afternoon or something and it just like you forgot how good it felt to just feel okay and it feels even better and yeah. that kind of happened to me and um I just had this kind of magical day at this place called Sintra which was super inspiring amazing architecture and uh by the end of that day we went back home and I just got the laptop out and started playing around with ideas and this beat happened wow. <laughs> I don't know that's amazing what can you play the beat was the beat the first thing that that came yeah it was the drums so I was just kind of messing around with kind of syncopated drums And then I kind of started messing around with some synth chords. And I think this is when I kind of realized that like straight chords is one thing, but if you mess with the rhythm of the chords, it becomes more interesting. And then if you mess with the rhythm of the chords to the point that they don't make sense, they're kind of out off the grid. As long as the drums are in time, then it can create like a really cool kind of bouncing sound. So kind of like around here, I mean, I was listening to a lot of like Flying Lotus and stuff and that really, I, I couldn't believe like, oh, you can do music that's not perfectly in time. That's cool. So I kind of took that inspiration and like Diller and stuff, applied that to this. And yeah, doing this track was one of the first times I realized like, that's cool. That's a vibe, like just doing the syncopated thing. Yeah, I guess we should hear the original beat and then hear what you did on top of it so that we can see the difference and hear the the contrast the way that it shifts the whole feel mm. of it once you add those chords it's missing a couple things but you know you get the idea So the vocal sample, where does that come oh, from? Oh yeah, the vocal samples. I found this like vengeance vocal pack of like happy hardcore songs. They're all at like 155 beats per minute. And I thought like the melodies were really good and I kind of just, for this record, was like a gold mine of vocal stuff and I kind of slowed it down and just cut it up into to the point where you couldn't really recognize it. and. Um, with Ableton, you could pitch things up and down really easily, and that's something that you couldn't do in Fruity Loops at the time. And yeah, so it was messing around with pitch bending vocals and stuff. There was also you know, some Hudson Mohawk, Rusty, kind of listening to that, and that was very inspirational as well. So would you be doing this all live? Would you have all these ingredients at your fingertips, things that you'd kind of discovered and had to listen to? And then would you be just exploring as you're creating it. Yeah, I mean, I just had some samples and some drum sounds and yeah, just on my laptop with my headphones, messing around, experimenting. So, I mean, after that amazing day in Sintra and you started working on this track, kind of inspired by that wonderful day, how much of the song was created then? I mean, was it all laid down at that point? Honestly, pretty much all of it. Yeah, it was like a really quick thing that came about it was more just like a little loop, but I think I then did some more to it later. But from memory, it was pretty much 
all done just there. It just kind of came out. And that's kind of how a lot of the ideas at the start, like for the first record happened, they were all quite quick generally, which is something that I, I miss a little bit because I think when you're just making music unknowingly for the fun of it, you don't really put too much pressure on it or what it has to be and things often can come about really quickly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about the track and what we could hear of the different elements that comprise Sintra that you'd be able to share with us. I mean, we've got this vocal thing. It's so funny listening to these songs like I haven't played this for so long yeah I feel like almost a little self-conscious just because I'm it's just you know from 10 years ago you do things differently to me it sounds so like kind of rudimentary and and basic (laughs) but yeah I mean I just kind of fucked around with some vocal samples some synths and this is a stem called rap in here which I don't know what the what is it's because we flip tracks oh this is a biggie That was just some acapella I pulled, I think, for the shows, just to spice it up a little bit. Right. So, I mean, the STEM package you're looking at for this is your live STEM package. So is this still in the set then? Is this track still in there? No, it's not. It hasn't been for a while, but it was for the first album. Yeah. And so uh, having created something like this, I mean across the album you do have guest vocals mm. so you know but some tracks say like Sintra you know you leave with the vocal sample and you know you keep it like that the introduction of guest vocalists was that something that just happened organically or was it something that you know you thought oh I really need some vocals on this one of the reasons why I'm asking is that Chet Faker features on the album he he features on some of your other records as well. And obviously he's a friend of yours. He's a fellow Australian. Um, he's also been on tape notes mm. and he was singing the praises of Ableton. So I, I suspect that you probably exchanged tips about this kind of stuff as well. Yeah, I love working with Nick. He was kind of, I guess, popping off on SoundCloud around the same time as me and I just reached out to him. And I think like I come from just making instrumental stuff, but over the years I've realized like, the depth that having vocals can bring, a human vocal. And yeah, you know, I was a fan of his and we did a track on the first record and then we also just did an EP together. We had three days at his friend's beach house somewhere and that all came together quite quickly too. Yeah, I love that idea that in a way you just kind of get on with it. Yeah, (laughs) it was really cool working with him because he can really play the keys really well. At the time I was pretty like computer clicking in the MIDI kind of vibe. And, you know, every day we came up with like a different idea is a concept for a song. Like one of the concepts was like, let's find the shittest drum sounds and synth sounds started out like that. And then at a moment in the song, it's like the lushest synth sounds and the best drum sounds to kind of contrast the two. Uh, And he also kind of pushed me to play more. Like uh, one of the tracks on that EP we did, he had a saxophone there and he was trying to play it and he was terrible at it. And I was like, oh, I can play the saxophone. He's like, play it. I'm like, no, I don't really want to play saxophone. I don't reckon it needs it. But he kind of pushed me to and then I ended up doing this like saxophone outro thing on one of the tracks and it was just turned out really cool. So yeah, he definitely pushes me to 
try new things. Yeah, no, that's really good. I mean, you probably, you know, having kind of grown with the saxophone, it's probably in your mind just something that it's just something you've done and that isn't yeah. necessarily who you are. Yeah. But at the same time, it's another skill. It's another talent. I should be using it more often. We should be whipping out the sax on a regular basis. Yeah. Maybe I will. Maybe that's the move. Definitely. My trump card. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the live show, you'd be on a some kind of pulley system so that you fly that's up it. into the air. That's yeah, exactly Nobody's right. going to expect that. No. Nope. <laughs> there we go. That's the new show. Figured it out. Excellent. So um, we are going to move on to the second Flume album in just a moment, but let's have a, another blast of a section of Sintra, maybe something we haven't heard. <laughs> I don't know. It kind, kind of, of repeats, but let's have a... Also, some like little vocal chop things, like chipmunk vocal. That was supposed to be in there, the enemies. But I had these kind of all different pitches on like a launch pad. So I was in the show just playing these little vocal chops. Yeah. <laughs> so taking you back to the early taking days um, so we're going to move on from Sintra we're going to take a quick break and then after the break we're going to have a listen and an explore of Helix you may have heard us talk about Tape It before and if you haven't then let me fill you in as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. 
This episode is supported by Museversal, an amazing new service for working with session musicians remotely. If you use session musicians or would like to, but it's been too expensive or hard to organize, this is for you. And we have a special offer for any Tape Notes listeners, 25% off for the first three months, and you get to skip the wait list, but more on that in a moment. I've got David from Museversal here to tell us all about it. Hello, David. What is Museversal? Hey, John, thank you so much for having us on here. Appreciate it a ton. Museversal is an online remote recording studio for artists, producers, composers, anyone who's a music creator to work with session musicians remotely. In a couple of clicks, you can go on and you can book a session with a drummer or a guitar player, a piano player, you name it, they're on the platform. And so the way that it works is all of the sessions are hosted over live stream. So all of the, you know, revisions and feedback and all of the different little, you know, hey, um, would you mind, you know, moving to the ride symbol for the fourth bar? Or would you mind, you know, finger plucking instead of using a pick? You know, all of those types of creative choices can happen quite literally as if the musician is in the room just done over live stream. Yeah. It sounds amazing. And in a way, the clue is in the name, Museversal. It means that whether you're a beginner or whether you're somebody with a lot of experience, you can still get access to the same kind of level of musicianship and creativity. Yeah, it's amazing because it allows the music to have expression on it and musicianship that, you know, if I'm sitting in my basement playing piano versus a piano player that's played for, you know, Jay-Z or has been playing for 25 plus years, the material that comes out of that is going to sound night and day. What does it cost? So the service is $200 a month US and included in that is all of the sessions. So there's no additional fees or anything. You know, you get to book as many sessions as you can have per month. To put it in perspective, the average user probably books about five to seven sessions per month. But we actually have some users booking 10, 12, 15 sessions per month. So I mean, you can do the math on 200. The The deal really is awesome. And it, it allows people to work with incredible musicians and, and, you know, not break the bank. It sounds great. Can you remind us what the offer is for Take Notes listeners? Well, look, we're so thankful um, that you guys are having us on here. What we would love to do is offer 25% off per month for their first three months. And then the other cool part is they get to skip our wait list. So, you know, we usually run a wait list. It's about two weeks long. But in this case, you know, finding us through this episode, you could have a session as early as tomorrow. Fantastic. And to get the offer, all you have to do is find the link in any of our recent episode show notes. David, thank you so much for speaking to us. And maybe one day we'll be talking about a piece of music that's been created using Museversal. That would be incredible. We cannot wait for that day. So the next song we're going to look at from Flume is Helix, which is the opening track to Skin. All the songs that we're looking at today are the opening tracks on your albums, Holly. And let's hear a bit of Helix and then then we can get chatting about it. All right. (laughs) Oh, it's so funny to be playing these. Epic. Oh.
So that's a little bit of Helix, the kind of opening section from Helix. And it's interesting listening to it because it kind of builds to this moment, then changes a little. But in contrast to Sintra opening on the debut album, Harley, it seemed with Sintra that it was kind of almost random. It's like, where will this fit? It won't fit anywhere, right? Mm. We'll put it at the front. Whereas four years later, with the second album, Skin, did you have a, a bigger idea of what you were doing or, or how you wanted to do things? I mean, did you have a, a plan or was Helix going to always be this kind of almost ominous opening number? Yeah, I mean, I did these chords and this like little flute melody and stuff. And I was like, oh, shit, this is intense. It was for me, it's like on the borderline of being super cheesy. But I was like, I just love it so much that I wanted it to be on the record. And there was only ever going to be one place for it. And that was always going to be at the start. <laughs> yeah. It's a great intro track, though, isn't it? It's a great way to yeah. open things up. Oh, it's... man. It was so good for the shows as well, like having that. So can you remember how it came about? Yeah. So this started off when I came to America and did a couple of weeks in LA. And I was working at a friend's studio. And we just kind of go in every day and see what would happen and one day I went in and did these chords and kind of wrote this flute melody with like a on the keys and I thought it was cool added like a little vocal sample thingy in which is that and then I had these chords And then, then there was these little flute samples <laughs> using contact, just like play them in. It's kind of funny. My manager's like, oh, cool. It sounds like Pirates of the Caribbean. And forever since then, I've been like, oh, yeah, it's like, sounds like some kind of Pirates of the Caribbean intro or. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking it sounds like a samurai film. A samurai film. <laughs> I like that. But anyway, I had this kind of epic chord melody thing going on, and I'm like, cool, I want to use this somewhere. And I felt like it needed to go somewhere because it felt like it was leading up to something. And so I sat with it for a while. I just kind of left it sitting on the hard drive and continued on making music and doing things. And then I was like, kind of on album deadline and I was quite stressed and I was struggling to write so I kind of like snapped at one point I was going into the same studios a uh, friend's studio it was like a little back granny flat with this little studio in it and I was going there every day for a few months and I got to the point where I was just banging my head against the wall and couldn't come up with anything new and I was like I need to get out of here so I just bought a ticket to Mexico and the next day, I just flew to Mexico and my label were kind of freaking out because I was like, I didn't give them a return date or anything. And they're like, oh, shit, he's like lost it and is just going away and the album's due right now. Anyway, so I did that. I went to the coastline, the West Coast, found a little spot that had surf there. So I was going surfing every day and I'd kind of then go and sit in this cafe every day for like eight or 10 hours. And I was just frantically trying to just come up with stuff for the record. And 
Yeah, I, I had this chord progression already and I knew I wanted to use it somehow. I wanted to come up with like a B section, like a drop section or something. And yeah, I eventually just kind of cracked it sitting there at this cafe. By the end of that trip, I actually had like given myself RSI because I was using the trackpad. And I thought, you know, with things, you know, if you kind of get a bit of a pain, you know, if you if you work out a lot and you got like pain in your legs, it's like, well, that's cool because it's just you're getting stronger. They repair itself. So I thought that was the same with my wrist. I was like, you know, I'm using it a whole lot. I'm like, it started getting sore. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, it's just going to get stronger, you know. I was just like, when I rest, it'll get stronger. Anyway, I figured out that wasn't the case. So now I have one of these, like, right. ball mouses. Yeah. Ergonomic. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah, now gotta, I've, got, I've got this great yeah. mental picture, though, of you on the west coast of Mexico, go surfing in the morning, then, you know, in my mind, you're sitting in your wet togs with the laptop on um, and with the headphones on in the cafe, ordering espressos, yes, maybe. exactly. <laughs> and frantically trying to create and work your way through the songs. That's pretty much it. Uh, and I, it was quite <laughs> stressful, the second one. Like, the first record was really chill because I didn't know I was even making one. But the second one, because it had a lot of success from it, I felt this immense pressure to write an amazing new record or you know make it better and i kind of got like mentally felt like a yeah a lot of weight and it was tough to be honest to write the second one and i think that's pretty common with a lot of people doing the second they call it second album syndrome yeah so i kind of just worked my ass off and yeah got it to where i got it and so it, the album came out 4 years after the debut but because of your success and and from some people's perspective you know kind of overnight success and i guess in a way you were you know having gone from kind of backpacking to suddenly releasing a debut album and then being critically acclaimed and having a lot of popularity as well you know the two coming together you know and then that probably sent you touring and playing all over the place suddenly there was expectation for the second album but no time necessarily no time to kind of create it because everybody wants a piece of you yeah pretty much i was touring i was being ping pong balled around the world and saying yes to everything and then they're like cool we need a second record i'm like well i haven't fucking sat down in the studio for months like i don't know like i guess we got to block out some time and then when we did block out the time i was kind of like i felt this pressure and um but yeah you know it got there over time and uh enough bits and pieces here and there kind of scattered together and made up this body of work and yeah mm. and so i mean there are an awful lot of different vocalists on the Skin yeah. album, aren't there? So, I mean, all of those songs with all of those different singers, by the time you created Helix, were they already in the bag? Were they kind of... Yeah, this was one of the last things to come together. Right. So this is when you're, you're searching for a song that will either open up the album or provide some other kind of important contrast to the songs you already have with all these great vocalists. Yeah, I had like all these vocal tracks and I was kind of like, I felt like the album wasn't even mine really. I was kind of like, there's so much fucking vocal on this thing. Like I really felt like a pressure I needed to like come through with some kind of instrumental stuff that wasn't just like interlude you know? So I guess that's where that came from. And I think I, I did some other stuff on that trip too that may or may not have made it, but um, yeah. But it proved a, a helpful and constructive impromptu trip yeah. to Mexico. Yeah. It's almost as if you um, you just followed your instinct, regardless of anybody else around you and their own thoughts about finishing this record. Hang on a minute, you can't go to Mexico. You've got to stay put and get working. 
Pretty much. That's basically what they said. I'm like, no, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's the interesting thing from what you're saying. As long as you have the laptop, as long as you have all the things that you're then putting into your laptop, be they samples or whatever creative tools that you have there, as long as you have that and your headphones, you can kind of do it anywhere and then get the inspiration from that change, from that fresh perspective, from something that shakes you up a little bit. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for getting out of your routines or your habits or the same physical spaces. I think that doing all those things enables you to think differently and the different smells and sounds and food and it frees up a lot of mental space for creativity for me. Yeah. And in terms of Helix, I mean, are you able now looking back at those stems and looking back at the track and thinking about the track to think of the things that arrived in Mexico on it, the things that flashed into your brain when you're there in that cafe? Oh, I mean, it was really just the ending part, like the drop. The first part was there and I just needed to kind of come up with some kind of section. Yeah. Maybe we could have a listen to that sure. and see if you can, you know, in, in hearing it, you can go back to that cafe. <laughs> I don't know if I want to. I'm pretty sure that on one of the last days I ventured out and I was like, you know what, I'm going to eat oysters because they had oysters. I was like, fuck it. And anyway, I got terrible food poisoning on my return. Oh, no. But got some good music out of it, so it's all that really matters. Yeah probably stop eating oysters. So in our whirlwind trip through the trajectory of Flume's career, as we move from Skin to the mixtape, which was the next big project that you put out, it's interesting hearing about these different pressures that were kind of thrust on you. It's a tricky thing, isn't it? Because you um, want success. You want to be able to turn this into your career, what you're doing. And at the same time, when that arrives, it kind of, tears you apart as well doesn't it yeah i think like the success is yeah you definitely want it and you know i got into this because i like creating music and generally it's alone but then all of a sudden it's like you're doing sessions with all these different people and you're ripped out of your you know being close to your family and your friends and you're on a bus touring the world which is amazing but after a second you're like wait like you don't really have any support networks around and I definitely like felt quite anxious performing. I've, all, I've always felt that way or like doing radio interviews and just all this stuff was just really didn't come naturally to me. And I was thrust into this world. So then I kind of, you know, at the shows, I would like have a few drinks before I got, went on stage to calm the nerves and just kind of get through it and whilst performing as well. And then I'd end up drinking most days and then I started getting kind of depressed because of it. And 
you kind of this whole snowball thing. So it's really amazing. And, but it also, you really got to be like very self-aware and try and manage these things because it's constantly, you know, alcohol and stuff is everywhere. Every show, there's a rider and there's this and that. And, but it's overall, it's been super incredible and amazing experience. But yeah. Just one that's very, you really got to be careful to navigate that. Yeah. It's interesting because we're going to talk about the opening track on the mixtape and the mixtape is the kind of next step. And in a way, um, I'm going to ask you in just a moment, you know, whether that that choice to do the mixtape had any relation to that experience of being on the road and that kind of disjointed feeling of, of being out of touch with things. So we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to look at Hi, this is Flume. In our whirlwind trip into the world of Flume, we moved on to 2019 and the release of the Flume mixtape and the opening track, Hi, this is Flume, um, which is just 31 seconds long. <laughs> it's very playful. It's an interesting approach and it's interesting to be able to kind of run through the opening tracks on the various different albums in a way and contrast the approaches and the thought processes that are involved. And it seems to me with the mixtape, Harley, you wanted to do something different, but you wanted to kind of go to the left, as it were, ignore the pop trajectory you might have been on. You know, this like collaborate with singer, put out single, tour the world kind of thing that you wanted to kind of buy yourself some time to recalibrate or whatever the right terminology would be. Yeah, I think I got kind of thrust into the kind of mainstream well, just world of music, which is something I hadn't experienced before. And I was doing like a lot of radio interviews, which fill me with anxiety as well, like live, you know, like high energy. Hey, what's up? You know, it's like, again, I don't want to sound like ungrateful because there's been a lot of amazing support from a lot of different outlets, but I find that well, I was doing kind of that every day in every city and then we'd do like meet and greets and this and that. And it's just like, it was a lot. Um, and also just sitting there, like I would do like three hours of, hey, this is Flume on blah, blah, blah. And this is what you, and it, I don't know, the whole experience of it all was just um, a bit overwhelming. I was kind of putting the business before my, my mental state. Yeah. And I think that I got a bit of an allergic reaction to, everything that was going on. It was amazing to have success, but I find the more success, I kind of was feeling like the more success I have, the less happy I am. And it got to a point where I decided to, um, the, the intro track was a bit of like a, yeah, an allergic reaction to all of that. I, I just had, was doing these radio liners one time, recording them in Ableton, and I kind of just uh, was messing them up a lot. And I got quite fed up and I just kind of made this little as like a bit of a joke just started to layer them on top of each other I could play it yeah do hi this is Flume hey this is Flume hi this is Flume hi this is Flume hi this is Flume hi this is Flume and that's like the first version of it and um so I did this mixtape which was me feeling like I was just getting back to my roots and doing more instrumental, more left field, obscure stuff. I did work with a few vocalists on it, but it was mostly all like rap stuff. And yeah, made this release. And then I was like, it feels like it would be cool to have some kind of intro. And then I kind of thought, oh, that would be fun to put this at the start. It would make sense to me because this 
body of work was a reaction to all of that that was going on and thought, fuck it, I'm going to put this as the intro. So I kind of extended it out a bit and that's how that came about. Yeah. And so we should play the finished version that you came up with, because in a way this ties in with the kind of technology that we have now. So, you know, you click on the image or click on the tab. Swipe up now. Download the song, pre-order it, pre-save. <laughs> <clears throat> Hi, this is Flume, and you're listening to my new single. Tap the artwork to listen and say. Hey, this is Flume. Hi, this is Flume. This is Flume. Hi, this is Flume. You're listening to my new single. And you're listening. Hi, this is Flume. This is Flume. I'm dropping by. This is Flume. Hi, this is Flume. This is Flume. Tap the artwork. Hey, this is Flume. Tap the artwork. I love that crossfade into ecdesis. Is that how you say it? Ecdesis. Ecdesis. It means being reborn. <laughs> <I think it's... laughs> right. Excellent. That ties in nicely. And in a way, I mean, that's the chaos in your mind yeah. created by this intense period that you'd been through. And it's interesting hearing about that as somebody who's on the radio, you know, and that's what I do. But the weird thing is, when you pre-record a radio show, often that's when you trip up, that's when you lose all momentum, that's when you don't get it mm. right and then you get frustrated with yourself because you're not getting it right. But if you're doing it live, often you just kind of get on yep. with it really. And if you make a mistake, you just kind of uh, don't worry about it. But it's kind of horrible pre-recording things. So I can really understand um, having to pre-record these liners for different radio shows. It would prove problematic. I mean, it wasn't really the so much the radio. It was just in general. I think it was just I was doing huge stints away from home and having constantly being pressure from, you know, management and label to like produce new music and I had no time. And then I was also saying yes to thousands of press things. And I just felt a bit like exhausted and overwhelmed by the whole thing. And it just happened to yeah. be doing a few hundred radio lines for like different radio stations around America. I think it was at the time, but um, yeah, that happened. <laughs> yeah. And did the mixtape work? In the sense that, no, it did it help reset things for you creatively? Did you yeah. feel like you kind of felt more like yourself again? It did. I really felt like, yeah, I felt more myself. The music felt more me. I felt like I was constantly being pushed to do more pop stuff more and more and more. And I felt like I was losing sight of what the project was about. And I kind of needed the reset to take it back to, you know, where it started and that mixtape. Uh, was that and I had a lot of fun making it and yeah leading on to this new record I feel like it's a really nice balance for me between um, more radio friendly stuff but also mixtape kind of thing and to me like I love both worlds but I felt like it was getting pushed too far with the skin stuff and now this feels like a really awesome balance of everything I love just on an album so yeah I feel like I finally yeah. like you know the pendulum swung both ways and I feel like I've found a great place. Yeah and it's interesting because we started with a, a little taste of Sirens which features Caroline Polachek from Chairlift. The first single from the album was Say Nothing which is much more of a pop moment but you know, you've got Caroline on there, the album closes with Damon Albarn so if they represent another side of your musical taste that you get to explore again with the album Palaces you know, so you can combine those kind of vocal performances 
with the other kind of songs that you create, you know, as you say, the more pop moments and in sometimes, you know, the more dance moments too. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like a, a really accurate balance of what I, I'm loving and um, I'm just excited to get it out there and hopefully people will feel the same way. Yeah, I'm sure they will. And the next track we're going to look at is the opening track, Two Palaces, highest building featuring Oklu. Okay, Lou. Okay, Lou. And we're going to hear that now. So we'll hear the full mix now and then find out how it all came about. Here we go. Baby, baby, if you play, you took me All the way up to the highest building Dedicated to the maze illusion The only one past from decision Was the way to the hardest building So that is the finished version of Highest Building featuring OK Lou, the opening track to the new album by Flume, Palaces. And we discussed about the selection of different opening tracks. Did you have a different approach to this album? No, did you have this as your opening number or was there a plan in that way? No, I just made a bunch of stuff and kind of found the ones that I felt like were strongest and honed in on them and, and really just... Yeah, I think like this one had a lot of different versions actually. It started when I was in London and I was doing some a session with Danny L. Hall and he played me these chords, the chords from the start, these ones. And I guess, like, for me, I feel, like, a little bit insecure about the fact that I didn't do every single bit on this track. Usually, for the past, like, three records, I'm like, anything production, like, it's I have to do it, and, you know, it's all... But I kind of let go of that a bit and kind of open my world to some more production stuff. And this, yeah, I just thought these chords were really amazing, and I just started writing around them. And anyways, that was kind of going to be the track, but then I was you know doing more music and it was during covid so i reached out to okay lou who i'm a big fan of she had an amazing record that came out and i was just a huge fan and she was interested in writing so i sent her a bunch of just little chord ideas that i'd done and this chord idea with the intention of if she picked that one that she wanted to do something to then i would just like switch out the chords and make it into a whole new song anyways so she gets the ideas she gravitates towards this one does this amazing little like that hook which i was just like so into let me see if i can baby baby everywhere you took me all the way up to the highest building i didn't look down on the way this melody everything you said i believed it dedicated to the mystic illusion the only one passed from decision was the way up to the highest building. And had she done that 
isolated highest building line there herself or or did you then yeah she did it herself i just sent her those chords and a bunch of other things and she did this idea and i was like really into it anyway so i tried to switch out the chords because i was like well i've already got like something going on for this track but i just couldn't switch like every time i switched them out it never sounded as good yeah I, you normally can switch it out and find like a better collaboration that brings out the vocal even more but i just couldn't with this one so I was like, well, this is the song then. <laughs> so then I you know, went back and forth with her and fleshed out some of the ideas with the vocals and um, some verse ideas. You said there were different versions of it. Is it possible to hear some of those? Um, well, I, I might be using it for other stuff because a, it's a really cool vocal, but I definitely have some like cool production stuff on this one that I was pretty excited about. So the main kind of kick sound was actually a thing that Sophie taught me. I was writing with Sophie a bunch when we did one session in Australia and was just recording the sounds because Sophie's kind of the most incredible sound designer, at least in my opinion. Mm. And I was like, how do you do this? How do you come up with these sounds? And Sophie kind of brought up this plug-in on my computer and just like made it in software she so we had this like box that should bring into every session and it was just the mono machine the electron mono machine and just make the most insane sounds from a fm it's an fm synth and was always just in awe and it's very super complicated note like difficult to get your head around but anyways every kind of just showed me how to recreate some of the sounds in this software synth What software is that? Uh, yeah, it's Razor. It's a reactor instrument, Native Instruments Reactor, one of the synthesizers that comes with it. And it's got some really unique things about it, some unique reverb stuff. And I don't really fully understand it, to be honest, but I can get some sounds out of it that I can't get out of anything else. Which is obviously the whole point, isn't it? It's about finding those tools that can help you create something you couldn't possibly create otherwise. Yeah, definitely. I'm always on the hunt for things that can do stuff that nothing else can. I always ask that when I go into like a synth store. I'm like, what here can do something that none of the others can do? And no one ever knows. They're like, oh, but this one's really cool. It's got a really cool filter. I'm like, I don't give a fuck about a cool filter. Like all of them have cool filters. They're all analog filters. Like tell me what, what's special about it. So I'm always looking for that, especially with software stuff. It's almost as if, I mean, in a way, it's all trial and error, isn't it? You know, even like the original synths and then the original, you know, different electronic keyboards, you know, end up being used in a way that they weren't necessarily intended. You know, I was reading the other day about the Slengtang rhythm that was taken from this early Casio keyboard and the actual person who created it in Japan, you know, was a big reggae fan, but she had no idea that they would use that beat that she created which would create a kind of whole subgenre mm. of the style of music, you know. I have to check that out. I didn't know that story. Yeah, it's on the, I can't remember the website, but she was fresh out of college, employed by Casio to explore their keyboards and their new electronic instruments and what could be done with them. And yeah, she created all these different sounds for it. But what I was saying, I guess, was that, you know, 
you're going to have to get the equipment and just fiddle around with it, even to the point that you know you just do one thing that you discover and like, and then yeah. you use it and abuse that. Yeah. And Sophie was brilliant at that. Yeah, like truly brilliant. It's such a loss. Yeah, it really is. Not just on a personal level, but also a cultural level, really mm. just changing music. Yeah, it's such a shame. You know, we, we would have seen her go on to be this gargantuan figure. Right. Yeah, I think about that actually yeah, a lot. Like, I truly think that in another five years or so, it would have, yeah, it was really exciting and it's really sad that Sophie's no longer with us. Mm. But I guess through your own creativity, you're keeping some of her ideas alive, you know, and, and <laughs> developing them. And so you've got this great relationship with OK Lou. You know, she's given you this great material that has kind of forced you to take this song down a certain path. Yeah, to a different path, for sure. And then what happens? So, yeah, that happens. So then I kind of just, like, follow the, her lead melody with this synth that's terribly annoying. So it's like follow the lead line, but it also um, if I just take off, I've got this gating plugin on it so that it kind of feels like it's a bit syncopated and not quite in time. So if I just play the straight MIDI, it's like. And then if I put it on, it's like. So I've kind of linked it to another side chaining it from some other sound to make it all tight like that. Yeah. All the tracks we've gone through, they've all been so intense, I guess. First tracks on the record, always intense, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, well, it certainly <laughs> seemed that way. <laughs> it's like your opening statement is always, you know... Fucking intense. Yeah, it really is. But maybe that's um, because you know what's coming. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess there's something about having it be like, whoa, on the first track. Yeah, you know the contrasts that yeah. are in store for people if they haven't heard them. And so when you're working with OK Lou, clearly this was, uh, it wasn't just a vocal collaboration, was it, in a way? She was responding to the song, writing her parts, and with all the vocalists that you approach, how does it work? I mean, do you ever send them a finished track and say, right, sing on that, or is it much more this kind of creative path that you've been outlining here? No, it's never worked like that. I'll either get in the room with them. Uh, this time that wasn't possible, but I just sent her like a 30-second chord loop. And that's what happened with like Never Be Like You and most of these songs. If I did send the idea, it was just a little loop of some chords and maybe some mm. drums. And they respond to that. And then I take the vocal and respond to that and then send that back and then they respond and it kind of back and forth. Yeah, so that's usually how it comes about. I've never had like a finished song and just been like, here you go. And that just never works because you never know what's going to happen with the vocal. And for me, it's always been important to go back and forth. I'm just looking at the tracks on this. There's 139 tracks in this Ableton session, which is like <laughs> problematic. That's It's absolute <laughs> chaos. 
Because I was going to ask you to build this one up through the parts and maybe soloing the sections as they come in. I mean, half these tracks are just muted, just bullshit that I just kind of left over bits. But I could kind of go through and play some bits. That would be great. What do we got here? Little bell. And is that your recording of the bell or is that a sample? That's just the same chords, but um, Danny actually did the, he switched it up to the bell sound. And I was like, that's awesome. And um, kind of used it as like a refresher so that once the track builds up, it then can go back down to this moment. Yeah. I got this like, it's kind of like this weird delay plug-in that makes each beat sound different. It's all the kicks. And are you applying that to each individual kick there, different each time? Yeah, every time it's different. With a different amount of feedback, it's on like a LFO, so it's kind of giving that metallic kind of sound. So when you do that, are you adjusting, readjusting with every single sound, you know, until you're satisfied. Yeah, pretty much. It's painstaking, but that's what makes it sound cool. Yes. Got to put in the extra hours, you know. Yeah. And all these little things that you do, that you painstakingly do, add up to a greater picture, and it just feels exciting, production-wise. Yeah. And you're not really sure why, but it's because of all this stuff. Yeah. It kind of, in a way, it creates an almost live feel to the programming. Yeah, it's important. I think it's important to have that human element of not every time it's the same. And I can kind of figure out ways to recreate that using cold hard technology to create that variation in the sound, which makes it feel a little looser and not so on the grid. So it's like four parameters here that are being automated depending on the kick so that each one sounds different. <laughs> There's a bunch of just like muted channels. I'm just going through some of the muted ones and seeing what they are. So in a way, these would all be things that you experimented with. Failed experiments. As options. Yeah, yeah. These are like experiments. Like I'll, I'll try like something and then I'll be like, mm, it's not right, but I don't want to delete it. I'll just like mute it and then try another thing. And then sometimes you'll be like, oh, that's the thing, but it needs something else. Maybe I'll try one of these other experiments and you kind of go back and then have a bit of a call and response or something. So I try not to delete stuff too much because sometimes it can come in handy. Build it, build it, build it, build it. 
So using all those core elements, can you build up to the finished track so that we, we can hear the whole thing? Do you want to play it from the top? Yeah, let's do that. So we got the chords first. This is some drums. Simple little clap. And there's a vocal down here. Baby, baby, I've been where you took me All the way up to the heart is building Down on the way All the way up to the heart is building Vocals Everything you said, I believed it Dedicated to the mystic illusion The only one passed from decision Was the way up to the heart is building uh, annoying synth. Then the bass one. With this one. And the drums. And we got the little. I do love those bells. The vocals. Waiting there in the Then the strings are in. When there's no kind of low past. Find a way to the ground. Quiet. Baby, baby, I've been where you took me. All the way up to the heart. Everything. I didn't look down on the wagon. Every single step I could hear you Did a kid Weird kicks Decision Was to detonate the hardest building That's just that delay Kind of tweaking it Getting it to sound kind of horrible, but contained horrible. Kind of the bridge section. It's a little riser thingy. With like a flanger chorusy thing. That the feedback goes up and up. With a bit of chords. Failed experiment. This is a muted channel. It's great. I mean, it's interesting in a way with Highest Building because it has many of the different elements that appear across the whole album. You know, you've got some really deep bass moments there, some really messed up, gnarly, metally <laughs> type sounds. 
but also these really tender moments from OK Lou and her vocal as well. I'm just thinking about tracks like Get You later on, which become really oh, yeah. quite gnarly. And then, say, Sirens and Palaces with Damon, you know, contrast again. Yeah, it's great. So it, it works really well as a, an opening number in that sense. Like a, a film soundtrack will have an overture at the right, start. Right, right. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I feel like it's a, a fun way to start things. There is like a broad spectrum of stuff on this record from just like piano ballad things to like, yeah, the Damon one, which is kind of spacey ambient almost, um, to mm. the high intensity, highest building. And yeah, you know, I like a lot of different music and I like a lot of different energies. And so that just kind of naturally comes out when doing a project like an album. Um, so yeah, just kind of like a bit of everything. Yeah. In terms of learning all your production techniques, are you completely self-taught from that kind of CD-ROM through to getting all that other equipment from that guy in the shop? You know, it, it was just a matter of you spending all that time having a go. Yeah, it was just YouTube. Mm. When I met that, uh, Sean, the guy who put me onto Ableton, he taught me a lot of stuff as well. So that was, yeah, a big learning experience. But for the most part, it's just YouTube tutorials for the essentials and then just working with other artists and seeing how they do things can be really informative too because everyone kind of does things differently and uses plugins differently especially working with producers it can be really uh like interesting also just like with danny for example the way he does chords and stuff he has some really interesting ideas which yeah i just don't naturally think of so i think collaborating with producers but also just some hardcore youtube tutorials at least to get yeah. your feet off the ground that was it <laughs> yeah it's great that they're out there isn't it it's like a ready-made so good you can learn anything ready-made university that's it and do you mix all your own material or when it comes to say the album overview do you share that with somebody else so i mixed everything for the first record and most of the stuff after that but then when it came to skin i didn't want to let it up but management and stuff like you should get it mixed because it had a lot of vocals on it and I didn't really know much about mixing vocals too much anyways I kind of finally let go of the reins after not wanting to and I worked with this mix engineer Eric Eric J and he just made the vocals so much better <laughs> he's got all these boxes that are like worth 20 grand which you can barely hear the difference in what they do but combined he's just running all through these like amazing you know ten thousand dollar hardware reverb versus my like ableton one and you know he's just really talented as well and ever since then i've worked with eric mm. oh, quite painstaking at first because i've got quite a strong opinion on mixdowns as a producer but we've kind of got to a space now where he really we really work just really well together and we kind of get what each other's going for and I mean, sometimes there's tracks that I'm like, oh, I prefer my mix on if it's instrumental stuff. But for the most part, like for this new record, yeah, everything's gone through Eric's hands. Yeah. And so before we let you go, Harley, there are a couple of questions we ask everybody who comes on tape notes. And the first of those is about equipment or technology. Is there a piece of technology that you cannot work without or live without? Again, I kind of didn't have money starting out. So all I'd use is software synths. So I now have a bunch of hardware, but like, I don't need it. Just a MIDI keyboard, really. There was one 
synth that's been really kind of influential for me or one that I gravitated towards. It's called Synplant. It's by Sonic Charge. It's kind of this experimental synthesizer where you like grow the sounds and the sounds have branches from the seed. A lot of randomness. It's got an amazing reverb in it. It just doesn't quite sound like anything else. And I've used the hell out of it. Like scroll through the presets on that thing. And if you know my music, you're probably like, oh, that's on that. <laughs> it's like, so I've used the hell out of that thing. Right. I love it. So that would be my pick for now. Yeah. Interesting. And the other question we like to ask everybody is about advice, whether you have learned anything along the way that you would like to pass on and share with other people or whether you've met a guru along the way and they shared a piece of advice that you can never let go, that you hold dear and that you think everybody should hear. I feel like people often feel like they need to uh, have their own thing or their own sound or whatever, but I feel like there's like a, especially for people starting out like musicians, I just kind of spent years like copying other people's sounds and figuring out just the technical side behind things. And I think it's undervalued, just like ripping other people off is great and stealing ideas. I think that's awesome. Um, and you should do that. And then the more you do that, the more you kind of understand how everything works. And then you can kind of take a piece from here and a piece from there and inject it into whatever you're doing and it becomes your own. Yeah. Yeah, don't be afraid to steal and rip off people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but as you say, when you learn the technique, you, you, in the attempt to try and understand how they created something, you start learning the technique and once you've mastered that, then you're not necessarily in awe of it anymore. Right. You might still be impressed by it and still love it, but it becomes part of your armory, doesn't it? Yeah, I think learn the rules and then you can break them. Mm. It's been great to speak to you, Harley. Thank you so much for giving us your time and investigating these stems, some of which I guess haven't been put up onto a computer screen for quite some time. Um, so it's been a real privilege to have that and have access to that. Um, we should play one more song, a kind of outro song from Palaces, I think, something that will give people another little taste of the new record. I mean, in, in my mind, I'm thinking Palaces, the title track and the closing track of the album. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a great one. It would be a nice balance to all the full-on sounds that I've been playing, um, a little bit of a little something a little more mellow. Yeah. And in relation to Damon, was this all done online or, or did you hook up? Uh, we got in the studio together after doing a show, actually in Vegas. I was a massive fan, so I'd always you know, wanted to work with him. I've been a huge fan of Gorillaz and Blur and finally got the chance. He kind of came in a bit hungover. I had a few drinks the night before. We kind of started chatting, got to know each other a bit. And then I started, he's like, all right, play me some songs. Play, what have you got? So I kind of whipped the laptop out and started playing ideas. And he was just not really into any of them. So I just kept playing idea after idea after idea. And I'd probably played like 20 things. And I was starting to really sweat because he's like this idol of mine. And I'm just like playing him stuff and he's just not responding. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I get to like the second last idea I had that I was going to play for him. And all of a sudden he's like, this is it. I love this. It was the chords. It's kind of that chopped up sample sound and with that little vocal chop. And he was really into that. Thank God. I was very fucking relieved. And yeah, we kind of just sat together and he added some little piano bits and we figured out some melodies and 
recorded it and I took that away and uh, yeah, then later on, fleshed it out and figured out how it was going to be structured, which took me a while. Added in that drum part at the end and the build and yeah, really happy with how it turned out. That was one of the first songs for this record that this is the first one that I started that actually made it on this record. So it's the oldest. Right. But yeah, I love how it sounds and it feels like, it felt like a really beautiful ending to the record. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I really like that story. I really like the story because it has a happy ending. <laughs> you know, that, that moment where you're thinking, oh no. It's I thought it was over. Wrong. I thought he was just going to be like, yeah, sweet, like cool to meet you, bye. <laughs> and nothing would happen. But, but instead, you got this piece of gold out of that combination. Fantastic. Harley, thanks so much again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A real pleasure. And here is Palaces featuring Damon Albarn. Thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode if you have a moment do tell your friends and leave us a review it all really helps thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show i'm just one part of the team that brings you take notes it relies on your support if you'd like to donate please head to our website once again thank you for listening until next time goodbye